0: everyone and welcome back to another episode of In Our 1990s. This is the podcast where we're ranking all the alternative albums of the 90s and uh, at the same time testing the limits of our marriage. I'm your host Natalie and with me as always is my co-host Hadrian. How are you doing, Hadrian? Pretty good. I think this will be less contentious than last week's episode. Just a little bit. I, I I love the first album we're doing, but I also have reasonable expectations on its ranking. So
1: I would have taken this one... You'd be a riskier on this one than last week.
0: Well, I know, but but last week was a credibility issue. So. Was it?
1: Does anyone actually care?
0: I, I mean, if anyone's listening, I think that we have a responsibility to not only consider our own feelings, but consider, you know, try try to be somewhat objective instead of just completely shitting on things that are popular. But uh, we're going to start off this week with a brand new record from nineteen ninety. Uh, flood by they might be
1: giants
0: (laughs) yes i'm quoting the opening uh the opening theme from flood uh, which is one of several very short songs on this record Mm -hmm. which has 19 tracks but is not a long album um so i am a very big they might be giants fan um and like many people around my age i discovered them when uh, Particle Man and Istanbul were, uh, uh, when they made music videos for those two songs on Tiny Toon Adventures. And I went out and I bought the tape of Flood because I liked those songs so much. And uh, the rest is history. I, actually, I bought Flood and I kind of didn't like it. <laughs> <That> was <laughs> um, Like, I loved those two songs. I loved Birdhouse in Your Soul. Um, I really liked Lucky Ball and Chain, and then I thought the rest of the album was kind of too weird for me. Like it was, this was definitely my introduction to weird ass music. Um, and it grew on me until I liked almost every song on the album. There's still a couple that I that I'm sure we'll discuss that I don't love, but um, yeah. It, the tech, specifically the song We Want to Rock was where. I, like, coming to like that song was the one where I feel, feel like I was, like, changed forever in, in terms of, like, seeking out just weirder and weirder shit. Because <laughs> that's a weird fucking song. <laughs> it is a very weird song. I mean, it's not a, like, musically, it's kind of like Zydeco. It, it, so it's not super weird in that way, but just, like, the way it veers. and And also, you know, I was young at the time, so I didn't really understand a lot of the lyrics. Or, like, that song is how I learned what the word prosthetic meant. And um, yeah, it's like this weird song that just keeps getting more and more obscure until he's singing about, you know, everyone wants prosthetic foreheads, <laughs> <And> like <laughs> which which is very funny because uh, John Linnell in talking about that song said like that that's supposed to be the humor of it, that it starts off of this universal like like the metaphor of a rock to, to wind a string around is like something to build on some kind of foundation to like start start on. And then it just veers off into like, well, of course everyone wants prosthetic foreheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I like I feel like if you're listening to this, you know who they might be. Giants are it's it's John Flansburgh and John Linnell, um, two guys from Brooklyn who started a really weird art rock sampler group <laughs> in the in the early '80s, and they put out their first album in '86 and. So this was their this was their third um and at the time, this was considered kind of i think like some people kind of thought this was so they't be giants so let me let me interject this. they're kind of one of those bands where every time they put out an album, it's the worst thing they've ever done, and, okay. and everyone hates it, and then everyone eventually comes to like it or. Well, not always, Um, but we'll talk about that when we get to John Henry, um, their 1994 album, uh, which was a huge, huge change. But I I remember some people saying at the time about this one, like, or not at the time, but like when I went back and looked into it a few years later, um, that it was like a big disappointment after their first two albums. Um, And it is different. Like th- my my favorite, they might be giants. Album is stole the first album. Like I'm that bitch on on this this man. I I don't think they ever got weirder or darker or better than their first album. Um, I'm actually I might be I'm not sure how heretical this is these days. I don't love Lincoln their second album and the uh-huh. one that was right before this like. I feel like that album catfishes people because Anna Ng is like such a great song that it starts with. And then like, but there's a whole lot of like pencil rain on that album. <laughs> and, and like it's, I feel like most of the songs on that album are actually like kind of bad. And then it just has a few really great ones. Um, but flood I've really warmed up on over the years. Um, like I said, I like almost every song on this album now and like love most of them. um, so it starts off with Birdhouse in Your Soul, which is one of the band's biggest hits ever. I mean, this was definitely like such a huge production for them because if if you've heard their first couple of albums, it's you know two guys in a drum machine and a sampler, and they're they're like, I mean, they're not lo-fi in the sense that like Pavement is lo-fi, but they're lo-fi in the sense of you know there's not a full band. They don't try to make things sound not synthetic. It sounds like a cheap drum machine and and a guy with a guitar and a guy with an accordion, you know.
1: And then they made that cheap drum machine sound the thing that that lingers in some of their music.
0: Right. Like they I mean, they never made an attempt to that's part of why they were so weird is, you know, they, they didn't sound like drum machines sounded in hip hop or electronic music. But they also made no effort whatsoever to disguise it and pretend that it wasn't a drum machine and that it wasn't a synthesized bass. It was just, you know, everything sounded for the time really chintzy. And that was part of their either part of their charm or part of why you hated them and thought they would never amount to anything.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so Birdhouse in Your Soul, which is the first real song on this album after the few seconds long theme from Flood, um, is like a pretty big production compared to what they had done previously. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's just a fucking great, great song.
1: <laughs> One of the catchiest songs ever written. Oh,
0: yeah, I mean, almost to the point of annoyance. Like, it gets right up against, like, so catchy you actually don't want to listen to it.
1: No, I, I, def- I definitely agree, because there were p- points in my life where I used to put it on... I used to make mixed CDs, because we had rewritable CDs, and I had a CD player I took with me everywhere. But I would put this song on some of the mixes, and I found out that I put it on too many mixes, <laughs> and then I just got so burned out uh, on that song. And the, now I'm I'm cool with it again. I don't hear it as people don't play it everywhere anymore. There was a weird time period in like the early to mid two thousands that was just nonstop. They might be giants everywhere I went, and I actually encountered this album the first time the same way you did which was Tiny Tunes. Yeah. And then I didn't... I couldn't rush out and get it because I was a children. <laughs> and... I kind of... I've never had a an ill opinion of They Might Be Giants, ever. I like it's, it's not music that I seek out, but it's... I understand why people enjoy it. I enjoy a few of their songs myself. It's one of those things where, like, I respect the heck out of this artist. I don't have the... The... The drive to listen to the music all the time except flood flood is one of the few albums that i was like i'm gonna listen to flood today
0: yeah uh, and so it so that song kind of maybe it, like gives you the wrong idea of like the rest of the album mm-hmm. and i can see somebody like who had listened to the first two albums hearing birdhouse in your soul and being like oh fuck they sold out um, because the production value is a lot higher. It's it's super catchy and hooky and sounds way more professional than anything they'd done before. Um, but, I mean, it still has their touches of weirdness that, that they had in the past. And so then, you know, there's a real Zydeco bent on this album because the second song is Lucky Ball and Chain, which is <laughs> real accordion Ford. Yes. And, um... So my one of my opinions that I found quite a few people share, um, at least the more like snobby music fan, They Might Be Giants fans, is that John Linnell is like the genius and John Flansberg is the guitarist. <laughs> yes. Even though they co-write, I mean, like their songs all say written by They Might Be Giants, you know, they, yeah. they apparently co-write everything and then one of them sings it but I feel like you can tell a difference in a like I very rarely am wrong when I guess which one of them is like fronting the the song and I I do kind of like have a have a problem telling their voices apart because uh Linnell sings in so many different voices like the first time I saw them live I was actually really surprised because he Saying a lot of songs I thought Flansburgh sang. Uh-huh. And it's just that he has such a weird range that he can sing. And, you know, Flansburgh has kind of a more, has kind of a deeper voice. And Linnell is the very nasally one who you probably think of when you think of how they might be Giants vocal sound. But like finding out he's saying a whole lot of the songs I thought Flansburgh sang was, was like surprising to me. Um, but generally, I feel like you can tell a Flansburg-Ford song. <laughs> um, like, I feel like a lot of times they have this theme of, like, like guys who take themselves really seriously finding out that they're, you know, kind of pathetic losers. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's what Lucky Ball and Chain is. Like, there are several of those songs on this album. Um, you know, Lucky Ball and Chain, Hearing Aid... Like minimum wage is is despite just being a few seconds long, you can definitely see that in it. Um, and and I think that that like these are the best Flansburgh Ford songs on any of their albums. Yeah, which is probably why I think it's like more consistently good because a lot of times I feel like the Flansburgh songs are kind of the bummers. Like I hate to say that <laughs> because like I've met him and he seems like a really nice guy, but like. It just John Linnell songs are the ones where where I just listen to them over and over and, and like feel like there's way more going on there, even though he like
1: Well John Linnell has that has that vibe and lyricism that, that's really important and makes his song so catchy. Like he did the Coraline soundtrack. Yeah. And they basically were it was sort of a Daddy Elvin situation but they're like, Oh you're you're John Linnell. We're gonna let you just do some stuff and then the moment his stuff kicks in you go like oh yeah because it's you there's a particular scene uh when the father's singing in the uh, alternate world in coraline and like that was just like hits the same way that like birdhouse in your soul hits and it's it's nice it's but you can definitely tell
0: yeah and and if you really want like a striking example listen to like in the late 90s they each put out a solo album and, uh, well, John Linnell did his under his own name and, uh, Flansburg did his under the name Monopuff, but like the Monopuff album is like just really bad alternative rock that you, oh. I'd like dare you to actually get through that album without like <laughs> falling asleep because it's so boring. And Linnell's song, Linnell's album state songs is like on par with any, they might be giants of And I mean like better than quite a few of them, I think so, um, like that's that's a really good if if you haven't thought really deeply about the the individual members like listen to those two albums and and see if you don't come to the same conclusion um so i guess we should talk about the two the two songs uh, <laughs> from tiny tunes istanbul not constantinople and particle man yes istanbul i can take or leave like it's it's a good fun song but like I almost never think, man, I want to listen to Istanbul, not Constantinople.
1: Yeah, it's it's some things like it comes on and you haven't heard it in a while. You're like, oh, yeah, hey, look at that.
0: Yeah, it's not a song I skip. Like if I'm just playing a playlist on Shuffle on Spotify and it comes on, like I'm going to listen to it. But Particle Man, despite it being so played out and so overdone, I still love it.
1: It's a good song. And it's and it's 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 more fun to go back to if you want to. It's one of those songs that puts you in a good mood. Like it's just the fact that they also went back and amended the lyrics to the song to be more, to be more scientifically accurate.
0: Oh no, that was uh, the sun is why does the sun shine? Oh wait, right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, my
1: brain is.
0: Oh no, that's okay.
1: Yeah. There's, anyway, but same same vibe is what i want to say. Like the the sun is a massive incandescent gas, and Particle Man have a very cheery vibe. You put them on, you start feeling better. And it makes it sort of an evergreen song you can't really be mad at or have it overplayed. uh, Constantinople Constantinople is very annoying, but that song has always been annoying. Like, they didn't write that song. They just that's basically a cover. And they just made it a more fun and listenable version of that kind of, of that that melody.
0: I think you're thinking of Why Does the Sun Shine again? That one's a cover.
1: No, the take me back to Constantinople is also it's a, a pretty long, old song.
0: Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, Particle Man. So so Linnell especially has this thing where he kind of denies that any they might be giant songs mean anything, which is like a thing that I I wouldn't say isn't like irritating, but like. I kind of wish a lot of times artists would just say, I don't want to talk about what my work is about. Like the you know the famous clip of uh, David Lynch where they say, would you elaborate on that? And he's like, nope. <laughs> and, and I feel like that's kind of what John Linnell wants to do. But instead he goes to great lengths to tell you his songs aren't about anything and they're all just silly nonsense. I, I find it really hard to except that Particle Man has no deeper meaning. Um, I know this is like a thing within They Might Be Giants fandom, and some people go way overboard in interpreting that song, and I don't do that, but it's like... There, I feel like there is an underlying darkness to any song that says person-man, person-man lives his life in a garbage can
1: <laughs> that, that
0: you have to address as a listener. And... So it's not that deep, like I I do feel like that song is kind of just a little, you know, sort of a fun bit of existential dread, whereas Linnell's like, no, it means nothing, it's just nonsense. So maybe he's right, or maybe this is a death of the author thing where the author doesn't necessarily know what their work is about. Or, or he could be lying. You know what? Who knows? Look,
1: look. Sometimes people tell you up front that they just put things together, and somehow it is people have gleaned meaning from it. It does happen. Like, and I think this song is one of those those things that I I, I don't think it was intentional to be a, a deeper meaning, other than like that's a or maybe it's a stream of consciousness kind of lyrics writing where you just end up creating a. A story you didn't intend.
0: Yeah, well, that's what he said about "We Want to Rock." Is that it was that was stream of consciousness, but then it kind of had, kind of ended up having this, you know, uh, this contradiction of moving from from here's the thing that everybody, you know, this kind of every man song of like everybody just needs a little help to. I need a prosthetic forehead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Your Racist Friend is an interesting track for them because it does have a pretty explicit and political meaning, which is something they just don't really do most of the time. Um, And, I mean, that one's right on the surface. It's, you know... and, And it's not actually... I mean, it is a song about racism and being, you know, having to walk away from somebody because they won't stop defending this racist... But, I mean, they, they've also said on that one it's more of a song about just the sort of internal contradictions that people come up with to, like, get through their lives. Yeah. Um, And also a very catchy song. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to think because we're coming up on time on this one. So the last one I really want to, like, shout out because I used to hate this song and now I think it's, like... Maybe the second best song on the album is Hearing Aid, um, which is a Flansburgh song, or at least one that he sings. And I think, like, maybe the best song that he ever (laughs) did with the band, except, well, actually, I'm not sure. I won't won't go there because I'm not positive he sang this one, but there's a song on their first album that I love, and I I just realized I don't know for sure that Flansburgh sings it. Um, Anyway, so Hearing Aid is very dark, um, and it's that is why I've always liked They Might Be Giants and what to me sets them apart from like Weird Al or like anything you would have heard on the Dr. Demento show is that they did have these moments of like getting really, really dark. And if you go back to the first album, it's why I love that album so much. It's stuff like Rabid Child and Absolutely Bill's Mood and to some extent Chesapeake's Face, like those songs have like "Rabbit child is actually like a song. I have a hard time listening to, even though I love it because it's so dark and depressing and hearing aid is not on that level, but it's pretty, pretty bleak. Um, I don't know. Like, do you think I'm, do you have any particular input on that one? No, no, no.
1: no. Like it is very, it it is very bleak. I was looking at the lyrics to make sure I was remembering them correctly. I was like, I turned I turned off my hearing aid. Don't say the electric chair is not good enough for the king for King Lazy Bones like myself. Yeah, and like that's that's a bit grim.
0: Yeah, I mean there's some there's some grim shit. I mean like there's a song and it's one of their B sides uh, I'll sing Manhattan, mm. um, is like actually no it's not uh, that's not the one I was, thinking. I was thinking of um when it rains it snows, um where it kind of like progresses to like ultimately describing like a mass shooting by the end of the song yeah
1: <laughs> um and i guess people don't assume, and then I, I i know this is something that people i know who have had a, a disappointing encounter with the rest of the they might be giant music after hearing you know particle man or and it's more like yeah that, that song is actually kind of uncomfortably darker that's not funny they're not always funny and i'm like no they're, they're not always funny and like the humor is secondary to whatever else they're trying to do. And it's... this. I think that album, this album shows that.
0: Yeah, and this one is... I mean, again, compared to their first album, this one's pretty light. I mean, like, Hearing Aid is pretty dark. Someone Keeps Moving My Chair is pretty dark. Whistling in the Dark is... I mean, Whistling in the Dark is silly, but also, you know, still, a woman came up to me and said, I'd like to poison your mind with wrong ideas, wrong ideas that appeal to you. <laughs> um... Uh, So, yeah. Uh, So, also, I I do want to shout out, in particular, the song They Might Be Giants, which, since I shat on Tin Machine having a song called Tin Machine on an album called Tin Machine last (laughs) week, um, and, and the song They Might Be Giants, they originally intended to put it on their album called They Might Be Giants and then decided to hold off on it because they thought it was funnier to have their theme song be on their third album, which I agree with. (laughs) It (laughs) is funnier. It's also a great fucking song. Like it's so catchy and weird and like, and they described it as their, their take on Hey Hey, we're the monkeys, which of course their Hey, Hey, we're the monkeys has a sample of a guy talking about everyone has to hold on tighter to keep from getting thrown to the wolves. (laughs) (laughs) And again, it's that that dark twist on their humor that is what makes the humor tolerable to me. Because like, I am not a Weird Al fan. Like, I think he seems like a cool guy, and I just cannot appreciate his music because to me, it's just like it's children's music. And like, I'm sorry to sound like a snob, but I just feel like a a baby when I listen to it.
1: I, I think I think that's a little harsh, but I also understand it because I mean, he is at the end of the day doing a, doing parody songs, and they, never, they might be giants don't really do that.
0: Yeah, and I think that parody songs are, like, the lowest form of, of songwriting, so...
1: There are some good parody songs out there.
0: So, Weird Al's song, Dare to be Stupid, which is not a parody song, I mean, it's meant to sound like Devo, but it's a pastiche. That sounds fucking great. Why doesn't Weird Al do that more?
1: He just doesn't... He, it still takes a lot of work, and like he's, he's been very open about that. It's like... He, He's one of those artists that's like, yeah, I do stuff. I'm not like the world's best at doing the stuff. And then they just don't do things for well he p- he went a while without put without putting out an album because he was just like, I don't, I don't have any good ideas. And then he did he had he had ideas and like and that's kind of the problem. He doesn't want to like be on that p- constant production schedule of creating new content and workshopping new content. He had a thing that works and he's relatively good at So he just went with it.
0: Yeah, I just thought about we'll have to decide if we're going to do Weird Al albums on this show.
1: That opens a whole new conversation about things.
0: Oh, man. But yeah, They Might Be Giants are like, I feel like they are serious songwriters. And like, even though they would bristle at, at this, I think they're like serious artists, or at least they were. I mean, like, you can talk about what they are now and we'll talk about it when we get into like John Henry and stuff that's later than that when they became a full band and, and you know, became kind of a rock band. Like, uh-huh. there's a lot to be said about that turn in their career. But at this point, you know, at least their first three albums, and, and I think they've made really great albums as a full band, not nearly as great or as often. But, um like, it, I, I think they were like a real... Like people didn't take them as seriously as they should have at this point in their career.
1: Yeah, and no, that's yeah. really sad because like we, obviously the, the the broader appeal was there, and that people should have taken that seriously too.
0: Yeah, and and they're not doing parody songs, and they're not doing Doctor Demento, you know, Monkey Cheese, <laughs> no, random ball Random songs.
1: Don't 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 completely. Stomp on Dr. Demento. I I used to stay up late and listen to Dr. Demento.
0: No, oh, I, I mean, I did too when I was a little kid, but, like, a lot of those songs do not stand the test of time.
1: No. And and,
0: and this does.
1: I'm, I'm, man, the, the, there's- I'm gonna kick myself after this podcast because I can't remember it now, but there is someone- you wouldn't have suspect, got their start on Dr. Demento. And I know I used to have that whole story queued up for whoever wanted to defend Dr. (laughs) Dr. Demento, and now it's
0: gone. (sighs) Okay, so... Um, my suggestion for ranking this album is number 14.
1: Um... Yeah,
0: that's fine. <laughs> that would put it between Emmerdale uh, and Eight Arms to Hold You. Um, I, I
1: mean, I, I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: like I I don't think it's as uh, like... Is th- the back half of this album or the last like eight songs are mostly kind of bummers. Or not, not bummers, Like they're pretty good, but like they're not on the level of the rest of the album and it, it's like they should have mixed those songs through. Um, But I think there's more great songs on emmerdale and i you know it, it, it's kind of a weird like for me it's not quite as good as emmerdale and way way better than eight arms to hold you so <laughs> um but anyway that's my that's my suggestion so if you're cool with that
1: yeah that seems like a very reasonable defense and place for it
0: yeah all right and i don't like the song dead very much I i wanted to just wanted to include that
1: that's fair
0: dead which was covered by steve from blues clues on a they might be giants tribute album
1: wow all
0: right so i'll uh we'll commit that one to the list and then we will come back to talk about some johnny cash We're back with our second album this week, which is from 1994, and it is American recordings um, by Johnny Cash. So take that away, Hadrian.
1: Yeah. So this is Johnny Cash's 81st album.
0: Unfucking believable.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's his 81st album.
0: I wonder if that includes like compilations and greatest hits and stuff. It does.
1: It, but Nashville put everything out of like you recorded with this person, you recorded with this person, you did everything. So, yeah, so by this point in Johnny Cash's life, he had been dropped by Columbia Records. And Columbia Records pretty much is country music when it comes to most production. And American American Recordings, by the time this album came out, would change his name to Deaf American. Um, Picked up Johnny Cash. Because it's like, you can't, it's Johnny Cash, man. You can't not give him a recording contract damn
0: (laughs) so i think um sorry to interrupt i think we should talk a little bit about you know why is johnny cash why does johnny cash belong on a show about 90s alternative music
1: yeah so the reason johnny cash belongs on a show about 90s alternative music is because he was the absolute alternative to any everything that country was doing he was so outside of everything People who had been in the quote-unquote outlaw country scene also didn't want to perform with him. He was just down on his luck and went back to a sound, like a foundational sound with this. And it was something much older and much darker (laughs) than what country was actually capable of presenting in the mainstream. So he was deeply, deeply alternative in this entire scenario.
0: Yeah, because I don't know... I mean, I, I've never listened to country music, really, but like, my impression of country music in the 90s was that it all was, like, Garth Brooks. It was all this, like, pop country... I mean, it, it, the, the best you got was, like, rhinestone suits twangy Nashville. That's why people like, like don't Shania like Twain so
1: much, because that was at least tolerable.
0: Yeah, and I mean, she's fucking Canadian, for fuck's sake. Yep. But, um, I just you know i'm sure i'm i'm sure someone can point out like where i'm wrong but i don't feel like stuff like this existed in country music in the early 90s no and so that that's another reason that like we felt like this was something that belongs here and also i mean just from uh from my standpoint like there are songs on this album written by Tom Waits and Glenn Danzig, so... Yeah. Like, it, clearly the intention was for there to be a crossover audience, so I think that that also justifies it being on on this show.
1: Yeah, it was like, how do you make Johnny Cash marketable in the twi- in the, the late 20th century? Well, for people who actually like music, he's Johnny Cash, he, he sells himself. But for people who were coming into a darker aesthetic or a nihil- from a nihilistic perspective and maybe didn't listen to Johnny Cash when they were younger... You see this grim, poet looking motherfucker just looking somber on the side of a road with just the white letters cash on that album. You go, I should listen to that. And then you get this, and you're like, okay, so it's a little Jesus y, but it doesn't feel like that's particularly a happy thing. And so it's just like, it just pours this like primordial goth all over you. And like that's the power of good, fucking sad country,
0: there's definitely a lot of sadness on this album. um, I don't know like is he as religious as he sounds on this record, or does he just like to sing about like the notion of redemption and like a Christian idiom is good for that
1: well, yeah, so he he was religious, but it was a so there's a little bit about Johnny Cash um which explains also the aesthetic of this album whatever he gets said. Uh he was the son of a share from a of many kids from a sharecropping family in in Arkansas and they were very poor, very religious, you know, small farming community and the sharecroppers got a rough time in Arkansas, just not a good scene. And when he left home he was already, he was, right, he was singing gospel and singing at church when he was at home, and he just, it was that kind of religiosity you have because it's always around, and he didn't have another frame for stuff. And then, of course, he, but the reason he's super goth is that when they were young, his brother, uh, I believe a younger brother, died in a, a combine accident. And his father point-blank looked at him and said, I wish you died instead. And then that was, like, the end of, like, Johnny Cash being a, a easy-to-adapt situations person. And he also uh, coached that situation by getting super into Edgar Allan Poe. Which is why he looks like Edgar Allan Poe on his TV show and through the rest of his life when he committed to being the man in black. And to, so he managed to befriend Billy Graham. And you know Billy Graham wanted you know reach out to any pop star or any musician to, to, to get his message out there. And he brought him home to his parents' house. And when Billy Graham left, he was like, "Well, Dad, that was Billy Graham eating at your table." He's like, and his dad was like, "You ate shit," and left the room. So if you ever wanted to know what like consistent and perpetual emotional abuse will do to somebody, I point to Johnny Cash. And he managed to adapt almost sensibly well. And that didn't go well. So, and that's what this album is. Like, it's just like uh, all of that out in the open. It's a very dark album. It's a grimly humorous album at times. But it is very plotting, and I know that that's not an easy sell. <laughs> it's. Because it could be, it's very easily dismissed as one note. But what I'm saying is, like the emotion and the history that I gave you, is so is just a glimmer into like the depth of him being a very poetic and kind of grim figure.
0: Yeah, and I d- I didn't mean to dismiss it by saying that. Um, it's it's a theme on the album. I don't think it's like bad that it, that it has that theme. Yeah. Um. It. I, I just wasn't sure because uh, around this time, you know, he was being sold as the man in black and this really grim <laughs> figure. And then you listen to the song, and it's just like Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Everything you've done for me, Jesus. And it, it just—I would—I didn't know. Um, well, yeah, and again, because of my complete lack of knowledge about country music.
1: And he's—that's why he's such a polarizing figure, though, because like he'll—he'll he'll sing the kind the these standard re- religious songs because it's an easy hook to get a certain audience but there is a certain just country faith that i think is just before we got into before we heightened tensions with evangelicals just being on every fucking corner and that just being like a, you're either super religious or you're a heathen there was just a mild, yeah, you know, I could go with some Jesus right now. Oh, well, Jesus, I bet you, you could probably fix this problem. I don't. I'll see you later. You don't go to church. You just like, thanks, thanks, Jesus.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned Billy Graham and like, to some extent, you know, I grew up in the '80s and I saw Billy Graham like doing his huge sermons and stuff, not live, but you know, on television. Um, and like, there was a real, like, whatever life he had privately or whatever like role Billy Graham might have had in politics his preaching was relatively apolitical you know Mm -hmm. it wasn't like what you think of as mega preachers now where it's just like you know republicanism anti-abortion like it was just literally was just like you need Jesus here's why you need Jesus come and get your Jesus you know it was yeah it was something I can respect more than than anything that passes for Christianity these days where it's it's all so cynical um you you did get a feeling that he just thought this is an incredibly important message Mm -hmm. and that's how this album is also it's like well let me just you know it's like those those older Christians you might have encountered in your life especially if you live in the south where it's just like well let me tell you you know i this this got me through the tough times, and and you know you can be a cynical atheist like me and think they're wrong, but like you don't hate them for it. <laughs> and, no,
1: and and one of the the main things is that he was into the idea of forgiveness,
0: and that is what this album is about.
1: <laughs> yes, I mean, and he and he is like the whole like the his albums from from San Quentin and Folsom Prison, um, his just the reason he wears black is just, like, people are, you know, treated poorly, and I want people to not be t- treated so poorly. And he also had a hard time forgiving himself for the terrible things that he did. So, I mean, anyone with uh, addiction issues does have that kind of weight once they start trying to move on, but that the guilt is part of what Kind of kickstart cycles, and Johnny. That's very. That's, that's I think that's why. It's just like nobody's perfect, and people need to know that they can be forgiven in the end. Which is a very everybody dies southern religiosity, which I like. I not. I don't subscribe to it in any way, but I like it. Rather than like hurting people with your religion, it's more like what can your religion actually do to solve
0: your problems. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting that the album starts with a song about killing his lover and then kind of proceeds to mostly be about redemption.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and, and Delia is an old song. He didn't. That, that's not a song that he wrote. Uh, that's a. It's an, it's an old.
0: Uh... Well, he he's credited as one of three songwriters he's put
1: one of the people yes this this version has been rewritten okay but it is a a lot of oh god what is the friggin term
0: like a traditional
1: yeah it's like a bar it's like a pub song
0: okay so yeah and but is because my experience with this and i actually thought it was so a couple of artists who like you know, at the time when I didn't know very much as a early teenager about how the music industry works, I kind of blamed the artists. But like when grunge happened, there was a big push of like, oh, Neil Young is the original grunge artist and putting Neil Young out there as, you know, oh, all you kids, you need to listen to Neil Young. And of course, being, you know, 14, I thought this is like incredibly phony and and I don't give a fuck about this old guy. And I got a similar feeling with Johnny Cash when like Nine Inch Nails was big and it was like, oh, the man in black, the original goth, Johnny Cash. And I was kind of like, I was very resistant to it because I was just like, this this just seems phony. Mm -hmm. But going back and listening to this, it is really surprising that you have Delia's gone. And then you have 13, the song written by Glenn Danzig, and the rest of it is like kind of a gospel album. <laughs> and like again, like looking back now, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, record label marketing. You know, now that I've worked with worked at a radio station and dealt directly with, you know, promote, promoters <laughs> and like kind of have mm-hmm. an idea of what that business is actually like. It's like, oh, okay, this was all made up bullshit and it had nothing to do with the music, really. But there's um, always
1: but the the vibe of those two songs is a a through line through Cash's career. Like, like he's always had a dark tilt to a lot of his songs. Yeah,
0: and I think this album works in that sense. And it's, I mean, like, saying the songs are gospel doesn't mean it's like, get up and clap your hands. It's very dark, southern, gothic gospel. And I think that the album works as having that theme of, like, oh, I killed my lover, now I, you know, now I need redemption. Um, But also, you know, I... (laughs) I hate it because I hate Lynn Danzig, but 13 is so good. <laughs> I love is that good. song so much. <laughs> it's it's not the best song on the album, but it's one of my favorites. Uh, Tennessee Stud is also my other fa- I, th- I actually think that um, Down There by the Train, the one written by Tom Waits, is the best song on the album. I, I think Tennessee Stud is the one I want to listen to the most. Yeah, <laughs> and Thirteen uh, is like a close second. Down there by the train is it, it's Tom Waits, so it's slow and ponderous and long. But I think the lyrics are just so good. It's like the the most the most successful that theme of the Christian redemption gets on the whole album. You know, I when he t- talks about it, I saw uh, Judas Iscariot carrying John Wilkes Booth, like, I think that's such a great line.
1: Yes. And I actually didn't know that that was written by uh, Tom Waits until I until now, and I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, I
0: mean, you can totally hear Tom Waits singing oh, that song yes. if you know he wrote it.
1: But yeah, and that's kind of the, the the interesting thing about Johnny Cash is that he could, and that's the interesting thing about this kind of country music that doesn't really. I mean, Dolly's still with us, so Dolly's gonna keep keep doing it. But like, she's one of the few people who stole like, I sure do want you to cover my song, or I'd like to sing my my song with you. <laughs> And that was just like the way that country music felt like, you know, who Chris Christopherson is now because Johnny Cash said Sunday morning wishing I was stoned on the Johnny Cash show.
0: There's a lot of weed on this album, too.
1: (laughs) uh, Yes, Johnny Cash, very pro weed, um, which is good. He was also you know, very, very against drug incarcerations. Yeah. Uh, which is why when people were like, well, if you took an Elvis, you look Johnny Cash, you look, obviously they're the same. I was like, no. Elvis was a shit-ass who was very much in favor of drug incarcerations, despite his history with things. And Johnny Cash is out there be like, man, we shouldn't really be putting people away for nothing. And so Johnny Cash... I want to have the same convictions, like like not like strengthen my convictions that Johnny Cash had, because he meant it.
0: Yeah, and and if you listen to Live from Folsom Prison, like I think that's the best live album ever made. Mm -hmm. Um, and just you can you can hear it, you can hear it in his voice that he that this is something he cares about. Yes, in a way that just. His concern for people who have been imprisoned, falsely or not, is very, you know, I I don't want to get too carried away here, but it has a real socialism to it and a humanism that I just really love. And I just really love the sound of that album. I love, yes. I mean, we're not talking about that album, but like, just to get my, my, feelings for for Johnny Cash out there and, and his philosophy, like I even though I'm an atheist, I do think that the gospel elements of this album work thematically and lyrically. Mm-hmm. Sometimes better than others. <laughs> um, but
1: the song, <laughs> Why Me Lord, I uh, I don't like, but Chris that's also a Chris Christopher yeah. song, and he took a I don't know what happened, but he woke up very Jesus-y, and all of his songs since then had taken that turn. He's yeah, still a good it, songwriter. It's just, like, like, it's written well, it's just, I don't want this song.
0: <laughs> and it, it may be, like, one too many, but, like, I think Redemption, which is one of the songs on the album The solely written by Johnny Cash, is, mm-hmm. it like, I think that's really lyrical and, and just very poetic and... and evocative and it may be one you know having to especially go back to back with down there by the train is maybe a bit much Uh, i maybe would have switched you know redemption and like a soldier (laughs) with each other (laughs) yeah Um,
1: what'd you think of the man who couldn't cry
0: uh, it's really funny that's written by loudon wainwright the rufus wainwright's father i think
1: i believe so yes
0: Uh, his wife died of stretch marks killed me
1: yeah, the way that's, and that and then there's there's something that Johnny Cash is just like I love that that thick Arkansas accent. I just my grandpa had a voice very similar to Johnny Cash's voice cuz just, you know, old smokers, I assume that's what they sound like, but the way he says status stretch marks just makes <laughs> me think of my grandpa cuz it's something that he would say.
0: Yeah, and it's I mean, you can just hear in the way he performs that song the way he can connect with an audience in a, in a conversational way that is really hard to come by. Yeah. And it's something, you know, Tennessee stud is kind of similar, even though that song's a little more like a spaghetti Western. (laughs) And, and so it's not quite as it, it, there's an authenticity to the man who couldn't cry, um, that it is kind of the stereotype. And I'm sure it was, um, I'm sure that Loudon Wainwright was aware writing that song of it being a stereotype of country music, you know, just the man who just keeps losing everything and <laughs> losing and losing and losing, um, you know, his, his novel flopped and his Broadway show was panned by critics. Like it's really funny. Um, but man, Tennessee Stud. It's, a, it's a great I was song. so convinced that horse was going to die at the end of the song, and then the horse doesn't die at the end, and uh-huh. I just loved it even more. I, I so that song. So Tennessee Stud and uh, the man who couldn't cry are both recorded live. Mm-hmm. Um, so my favorite moment on the album <laughs> is <laughs> at the end of Tennessee Stud when he's when he says the Tennessee Stud loved the Tennessee Mayor. And someone in the audience is just like, "Yeah!" <laughs> Somebody is so into horse sex in that <laughs> audience. <laughs> oh, that's so.
1: That's another country standard.
0: Yeah, that one's written by Jimmy Driftwood. Yeah. who also originally performed it, but it's been covered a million times. Yeah, but. which
1: is the, which is why uh, when we were talking about when I first brought up country, I didn't I didn't have a good way to explain this, but I guess this this album shows that a lot of country is covers. Or other people's music being recorded. Um, but I think it still merits attention. Because you can... And this is why I like country music a whole lot. Is that it takes a, a traditional song. And keeps mo- moving it forward. And it's it's what Orville Peck is doing right now. Salvaging what of the 90s <laughs> was good. And he covered Reba McIntyre's Fancy holy shit
0: yeah i mean that's a that is a great choice it's
1: but but i'm liking it to johnny cash because it's kind of how it feels when johnny cash covers a thing it's like holy shit johnny cash covered this song
0: yeah i mean i listened to tennessee stud and i can't imagine anybody else ever singing it like i don't want to hear anybody else do that song like that that just sounds like he was meant to sing it
1: yeah it's like when you first time you hear i put a spell on you it's like which version do you like usually depends on the first one you hear
0: yeah, I, I mean, I did hear the Screamin' Jay Hawkins version first, but I can't imagine favoring any version over that. But uh,
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I really like this album. I don't think it's like a, a gonna be a super high ranker for us. But
0: yeah, I mean, I, I do want to say like say my piece on what I don't like about it, which is just it needs more texture to it. I mean, like. It was literally recorded at his cabin in Tennessee and at Rick Rubin's house. And yeah. it's just him and a guitar. and just Except for the two live songs.
1: And I will say with that American Recordings 2 does have more
0: texture. And, and I, I think some of these songs you need it to be that. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't want a band... I don't want Down There by the Train to be a big production. And I can imagine has Gone you wouldn't,
1: know. wouldn't resonate the same way if you put it to anything...
0: You yeah, are. I mean, that song, I want it to be Johnny Cash on a guitar or Tom Waits on a piano and and nothing else. Yeah, because you, you do run the risk of making it schmaltzy if you over overdo it. But like some of these songs I do think needed needed more. And like like a soldier, like that song just kind of or wait, no, which which one's the song about Vietnam?
1: Uh, drive On.
0: Yeah, just Drive On just like kind of ends and it just like it doesn't feel like it's finished. And so most of the songs on the album do feel finished, but when you hear that, and it, it's just kind of like, "Oh um, man, this sounds like a demo tape!" All of a sudden, and and
1: I, I, I do want to say Rick Rubin was recording these, that like the reason that he there are Johnny Cash only lived to see two of these albums released, and there are six of them. Yeah. So, but what what Rick Rubin was doing was just basically was like, oh, just play, just play." This, and particularly this album, because Johnny Cash was like. He was gonna just hibernate in his cabin and just not do anything else because he was mad and he didn't know what to do. And he was like, my daughter doesn't like me. I can't work. Blah, blah, blah. You know, country man. And Mick Rubin's like, come record an album because you're Johnny fucking Cash. He's like, okay, sure. And then he was just... So if you get... There's a huge box that you can get. It's like, like three hundred one dollars of All of the material they have. All the like the little bits. Johnny Cash being like, nah, this sucks. Blah, blah, blah. I love those things so much and I want them. But that I think that explains some of why it's in bits and pieces, because it there wasn't it wasn't recorded for more than just posterity and recording someone. And then it was like, okay, now we can put these things together. So I think if he and later on they have more production and they're he's recording with like a band and having a richer sound, a more a broader Johnny Cash experience. But this definitely feels like, yeah, we're gonna just put these songs, this is a dirge, we're gonna He's going to be a grim man. We're going to do a video for Delia's Gone because no one's ever done a video for Delia's Gone. Which is very grim. Did you watch that video? No. Oh, you should. It's you should. But Yeah, so I think it's supposed to be very hollow and somber and really does amp up the, the more gothic, southern gothic aspect of Johnny Cash. But despite that, I think it's fine. Like, I don't know.
0: No, it's a, it's a good record, and like, I, it does just get, like, it's hard for me to sit down and listen to the whole thing at once, just because there's so little variety in terms of how the music sounds. And, like, as is like, hypnotic as his voice is, and his delivery, I, I just really wish that you could throw in a And I'm not saying like a, again, not saying a big production, but just like a lead guitarist and an upright bass and a snare drum (laughs) would like do wonders for some of these songs. And for, you know, my desire to like sit down and listen to the whole album in one stretch, because like. There's not really anything on the album I'd say is bad. It's just too much of one thing.
1: Which, I mean, that's a completely valid criticism, and I think it was a stylistic choice. And a marketing choice in a way. And I do like listening to this album all the way through. It's very easy for me to listen to. I just, I mean, I have it on vinyl. I just put it on. and
0: Yeah, I just got so bored doing that that, like, I had to listen to like half of it and then go listen to something else and come back and finish it because it, it it did just get too slow and boring.
1: And I get that. And, like, you, you're not a big country fan. And, like, no. that's okay. And you can appreciate what's good about this album and not hold that ultimately against it oh
0: no like I, I mean again it's a really strong theme i mean obviously johnny cash is a legendary performer for good reason like it, it just it is outside my wheelhouse and i'm just not a huge fan of like slow dirge songs so it it was a difficult listen for me but and i also like to see the quality of it
1: and i and i'm a big fan of the dirge
0: yeah well, so what are you thinking on the ranking for this one?
1: Uh, well, I'm thinking maybe, maybe twenty.
0: Um. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with that.
1: I think I think it's a reasonable place for it. It could probably hang a little bit higher, but I, I don't think it's outplaced there
0: yeah i'd start fighting a lot harder if it went above 18 but i i mean i'm i'm happy with it at 20 yeah so
1: because it's it's a good album it's it's noteworthy and it's it's worth paying attention to and it got a lot of people myself included going back and listening to that album like super into johnny cash like you get you get a full a full a partial Johnny Cash experience. Like, man, he really wants people to be forgiven and don't and get their their what they deserve in the end. Like, yes.
0: <laughs> Not often you're gonna see Fei Wong and Johnny Cash next to each other on a list, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but American recordings go in at number twenty between Anxiety by Fei Wong and Where have All the Merrymakers Gone by Harvey Danger. Um so let's do our top 10 um number 10 we have earthling by david bowie number nine kill uncle by morrissey number eight slanted and enchanted by pavement number seven superstition by susie and the banshees number six is spooky by lush number five very by the pet shop boys number four philosophy of momus by momus number three liberation by the divine comedy number two get lost by the magnetic fields and at number one nonsuch by HTC. And if you want to see everything we have ever ranked, you can go to bit.ly slash nr1990s. That's bit.ly slash nr1990s. You can also go to Spotify and search for nr1990s to find every episode of the show, as well as a playlist containing every album that we have ranked. And we're going to be adding two more to that list. What are you bringing next week, Adrian?
1: I'm bringing The the Laws by the laws oh
0: wow yeah there she goes man it'll be interesting to listen to that album again because i bought that album on the strength of there she goes and i remember hating literally every <laughs> other song on it so i'm wondering how my feelings will hold up on that and
1: i like most other songs on the album besides that one i so. might
0: like it now but we'll, we'll see my t- my tastes have diversified since then um i'm gonna do debut by bjork next week Oh, fun! As far from uh, Johnny Cash as as you can get. Is it, though? Uh, Yeah, I would say it is. Pretentious dance art music.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Debut is what you said? Yes, Yes. debut. Ah, Her first
0: first solo album. As you might guess by the title. All right, so that's that's everything for this week. And... uh, have a good week. Hopefully, you are, you know, doing better now that the election is essentially over. Ugh. And uh,
1: yeah, but it will never die. What is dead may no, never die. Apparently, only means this fucking election.
0: It's it's Tuesday forever. Tuesday. Hey everybody, still... it's Tuesday. <laughs> <So> Tuesday <laughs> has not ended, <laughs> but we will be back next week, and we'll see if it's still Tuesday then.